So again, we are in a series through the Beatitudes called Life in the Kingdom. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Again, I want us to begin to memorize these Beatitudes so that this series and the truths of these Beatitudes would be sticky in our lives. Stay with us so that we can increasingly reflect life in the kingdom above as we live life below. So I'm going to quote those verses. Does anybody want to give it a run and start again? Anybody want to quote the Beatitudes? I've been putting a few people on the spot. I wonder if there's anybody here who would want to quote Beatitude 1 through 5. Anybody here? Come on, be bold, be brave, be courageous. Uh, no? Okay, Julie, it's you. No. How about I start and we do it together, okay? Verse 3 Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled or satisfied. And then today, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. I think there's about 50 or 60 of you who could have just done that. So next time I'm going to pick somebody. Next time nobody will be making eye contact with me because of that, right? <laughs> Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Do you think that we live in a merciful time? The funny thing is, I do think the average person would say, I am quite merciful. I think the average person would fancy themselves quite compassionate. Take a pretty volatile issue today, the transgender issue. I can hear someone saying, hey, who am I to say that if a guy wants to say he's a gal, that he's not a gal? And if he wants to compete as a woman with women in competition, who am I to say that's wrong? That wouldn't be very merciful. That wouldn't be very compassionate. In fact, people would usually go beyond that, and you see this all the time, and they will say precisely, they may not say it this way, but this is the spirit of it, because I am virtuous. Because I specifically have the virtue of compassion and tolerance, I'm not only going to accept that as normative, I'm going to celebrate that. And I've had many conversations with you who work out in the workforce who are being pressured to celebrate those kinds of things in the name of compassion in the workplace. Now, the interesting thing is, if you have the audacity, and I should say the honesty and integrity, to challenge that narrative, however graciously you do it, and you ought to do it very graciously, you will nonetheless not be received with any compassion, right? You will, you will be condemned. You'll be canceled. You might even be destroyed. I could give you examples of doctors, of teachers, of professors who in the kindest way possible, say, I just, I can't play along with that. That's not according to truth. I would not be loving you if I embraced that lie. I can't do that. Who have, as a result, been canceled. And speaking of being canceled, 
Um, I read an article uh, this, just um, this week, and before all stuff happened earlier in the week, later in the week, this is, I write my sermons early in the week. I don't chase headlines. I preach the Word of God. So early in the week, I came across a very interesting article by Good Morning America. Actually, it was, it was a segment on the show Good Morning America. It was titled, I Was Canceled and It Nearly Destroyed My Life. And it recounted several individuals who, in effect, were canceled, who flew into a, a no-mercy zone by what they, what they shared. One example is, is a gal named Natasha Tynes. She's a uh, Jordanian-American. She was on the subway on the way to work in New York City, May 10, 2019. She knew that the New York transit system has a, uh, a pretty stringent policy against eating on the rail cars, she noticed a person in a transit, New York Transit Authority uniform eating in the open on one of the passenger cars. And she said, hey, I, I, I didn't think we were able to do that. The person said a few niceties, said, take care of your own business. And so Natasha took a picture of this transit worker in uniform eating against policy, and she tweeted it, and it said something to the effect of, hey, New York Transit Authority, I thought this was not allowed on the train. She forgot about it, got off the train in 35 minutes, and she was met with an avalanche of responses. Guess what they labeled her as? They labeled her as Racist because the transit worker in uniform she took a picture of happened to be African-American, this picture that the Jordanian-American woman took. And she was canceled. She was just about to have her first book released, a, a powerful novel about uh, life in, in, in Jordan. And the publisher said, nope, we're not going to release it. She suffered all kinds of consequences. Of course, she did what people typically do, profuse apologies, tried to backtrack, all of that. But it was too late. She was canceled. And we could multiply examples of people who happen to fly into no mercy zones, who maybe post something that, in her case, I would say that was a little extra. I don't think you need to do that, but she did. Or tweet something that maybe is just foolish or unwise, sometimes perfectly innocent, other times downright sinful, but all of which have been met by no mercy for you. You know, Romans 1, in the sacred text of Scripture, in the New Testament, gives us a list of characteristics of what will typify a society that is in a downward spiral of depravity. And there's some, there's some pretty, um, pretty, I don't know, lewd descriptions of that, right? Men with men working that which is unseemly, women exchanged, likewise the natural use of the body, etc., but the capstone for that list of downward spiraling depravity typical of a society is without mercy. That's the last description there. It is the word the ESV translates ruthless, no mercy. Now, y'all with me? Just as today is a pervasive atmosphere of no mercy, no compassion, so it was in Jesus' days and the days of his flesh on earth. Many of the Pharisees embraced 
this ethos. It's, it went like this. You only show mercy to people who do you right, to people who are in your tribe. Jesus comes along and he says, you have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, do you remember that? It's later on in the same sermon, Matthew chapter 5, verse 43. Love your enemies and pray for those who do you wrong. And then he goes on to say, for if you love, only love people who love you back, well, you know different than the doggone Gentiles, the pagans. They love like that. And speaking of Gentiles or pagans, in the Roman culture, there was a, there was a popular phrase. It went like this. Mercy, they said, is a disease of the soul. They saw the demonstration and extension of compassion or mercy as a sign of weakness. It was a no mercy zone. And, I, and let me just recount for you a few of their ghastly cultural no mercy mores or accepted practices that were prevalent through the history of the Roman kingdom. If you were a citizen who happened to own a slave or slaves, you could, without any fear of consequence, have that slave killed, buried, gone, and nothing would happen to you. Sort of reminds us, does it not, of a very dark chapter in American history. Four million Africans and then African Americans enslaved, brutally treated, who died under such oppression. And then there was this other practice prevalent in first century Roman culture. Husbands, if your wife displeased you, you could very easily, without again any fear of consequence, not only have her dismissed, you could actually have her killed. And it would be all right. That was a no mercy zone, right? And then there's this. Fathers enjoyed the right of what was called patri opetestas. Patri opetestas. In which the father reserved the right to determine whether the newborn baby would either live or die. The baby would be born, they would hold the baby up to, for the father to see, and depending on his criteria, gender, or maybe he saw some, quote, defect, and this was the baby went to be nursed, and this was the baby went to be drowned. Patri opetestas. No mercy. No mercy. And of course, you can't help but think of a continuing dark chapter in our history, Right? Abortion, no compassion, no mercy. And it's not just something that's happening in our nation. Like slavery, it is something that is still a, a malignancy worldwide. Last year, 41.7 million were aborted. That's, I think, good to remember as we take up these bottles for CareNet. By my calculations, I'm no mathematician, but during the time we're worshiping the Lord, 7,311 pre-born infant image bearers, people will go like that. 
And I think just as Jewish citizens, I'm sorry, German citizens in the know brushed off responsibility about the ongoing Holocaust during World War II, just like they brushed off the ashes from bodies, the, the ashes of bodies that would drift over their homes from nearby crematoriums, we brush off responsibility of this ongoing Holocaust. Well, it's already law. Well, slavery was law too, right? Or it's just a partisan issue, you know, a Republican thing. Or I don't think it's very compassionate to bring it up because of what the moms went through. That's horrible what they went through, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't talk about the atrocity. It's ghastly. No mercy is the collective story of humanity collectively through every age. But it's also the story of all of us individually through every age. It's easy for us to point the finger at something that we think is wrong, right? But I suspect and I actually believe with 100% conviction that there lies within each and every one of our fallen hearts outside of grace a propensity to say, that person should be canceled. That person should receive no mercy. And that's why Jesus' words were countercultural when he first spoke them, and they're countercultural as the Spirit speaks to these words to us this morning. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. So, number one, what does it mean to be merciful? If you were to open up your Bible and open up, say, a lexicon, you would discover that there are a lot of terms that are almost identical, almost synonymous, but with slight differences. Kindness, grace, mercy, forgiveness, on and on and on. And if I spent the remainder of the sermon trying to parse out the nuances and the differences between these terms, you would get glassy-eyed and I would get lost in the details. So here's what I want to do. I want to cut to the chase. I want to highlight what the word mercy particularly emphasizes. And here it is. We'll start with God. Mercy has reference to God having pity on us because of the distress and affliction of sin that we've committed, because of the distress and affliction of sins committed against us, and just the distress and affliction of living in a fallen, sinful world. World, God looks at us in this misery, in this affliction, and he has pity, but he doesn't just sit on his hands. He puts feet to his pity. So how would I describe mercy biblically? Mercy is this. I want you to hold on to this. Mercy is compassion that takes action. Mercy is compassion in action. Are you all with me? So what I want to do then is take this, this definition of biblical mercy, compassion that takes action, compassion in action, and I want to hold it up to the plumb line of Scripture. Specifically, one well-known story everyone has heard, whether you're a Christian or not, you have heard some reference to, this, to the parable of the Good Samaritan. In that parable, there's a man, a Jewish man, going from Jerusalem down to Jericho. On the transit, what happens to him? He's jumped. He's robbed. He's beaten. And it says in Luke chapter 10, he is left for half dead. 
Guess who sees this man left for half dead? A good Samaritan, as we call him now. The text says he saw him laying half dead on the side of the road, beaten, robbed, and all the rest. Guess who else saw him? Well, a couple of religious dudes did. A priest did and then a Levite. But guess what they did? They turned their head away and walked around him. But not this Samaritan. The text says in verse 33, he not only saw him, it says he had compassion on him. He had compassion. And this compassion he had on this man led to action. Because Jesus just stacks one verb of action on another in this story. He says he went to the man stricken on the side of the road and he bound up his wounds. I'm pretty sure he didn't have any PPE for that either. Then it says he poured oil and he poured wine on his wounds. Then it says he lifted him up and put him on his animal. Then it says he took him to an inn. And I just caught this this morning. I reread it this morning to prepare. And actually, he actually stayed the night with the guy caring for him. And then at the end of that night, in the morning, he goes to the innkeeper. He says, here, two, uh, two denarii, like two days' wages. If that doesn't cover what he needs to recover, then I'll come back and, and, and ante up the rest. He took action, right? There was compassion in action. And what's more, it's even more powerful. He did it for a guy who would have thought of him as inferior. He's a, he's a Samaritan. He's a half-breed. It was an ethnic slur. This purebred Jewish man, beaten, left on the side of the road, would have thought of the man who helped him, had compassion action as less than him, quite likely. That's the, one of the points of the parable. And then Jesus gives the punchline. He says, now tell me, which of these three had mercy? Answer, the good Samaritan. And then he said, go and do likewise. So what is mercy, biblically? Compassion in action. Now, I'm going to, I just shrunk massively what was going to be a bigger part of the sermon because there's some things I want to get to. But let me just, let me put a little bit of shoe leather on mercy or compassion in action biblically. It does four things. This is not an all-exclusive list, and I'm just going to run through it instead of fill it out. But if you want to know, okay, how do I put shoe leather on this idea of biblical mercy, compassion, and action, it would be number one, this. Forgiving those who have sinned against you. That's compassion and action. Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. That can be pretty tough. We're going to come back to that. Second of all, Compassion and action is not just forgiving those who have sinned against you. It's also helping people in their affliction. Pure religion, pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. What? To visit the fatherless or orphans and widows in their affliction. That's what it does. It helps people, second of all, in their affliction. Biblical mercy, compassion, and action. There's a third thing it does. It helps those who are struggling in their faith. When people begin to doubt truth, it doesn't beat them up. It actually walks with them. Brian read it from the book of Jude. On those who doubt, it says, have mercy. There's the word. 
So it forgives those who have sinned against you. It helps those in affliction. It encourages those struggling in their doubts. And then finally, it is on a big-time rescue mission. Sharing the gospel talks about in Jude. Snatching those with fear because you care for them. It is sharing the gospel. That is a way, an ultimate way, you demonstrate compassion and action. You give them the truth that can deliver their soul for eternity. So that's compassion and action. Mercy. What is the result of doing that? What does it now mean, second of all, where it says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. What does it mean, chapter 5, verse 7, B, the latter part of the verse, for they shall receive mercy. Anybody have an idea what that might mean? Anybody here? You don't need no Greek for this again, right? It means you'll receive compassion in action. Whether it's forgiveness for your sin against God. Help in your affliction from God. God walking with you in your doubts from God. God also bringing you the gospel. So one strand, one form, one flavor of biblical mercy, compassion, and action, I just brought it up, is forgiveness. I want to ask you a question. I asked two of my daughters this week talking about this text Preacher's kids are afflicted with me, always talking about the upcoming sermon, trying to figure things out in my head. So I asked them a question. You know what I'm talking about, right, Arpith? If you do not forgive others, that's one particular form of mercy, right? If you do not forgive others, will God forgive you? How would you answer that question? What do you say? Well, what do you say? Absolutely not. Flip over to chapter 6. I've got, it, what's, what's implicit here is explicit in chapter 6, verse 14. Same sermon. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also do what? Forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. There it is in black and white or in mine, red and white. Right there. Do you see that? Which caused John Wesley to say one time when a man came to him when he was preaching on forgiveness, he said quite arrogantly, well, I never forgive anyone. To which he said, well, then I hope you never sin. Because if you will not forgive others, you will not be forgiven. That was question one. Here's question two I posed. So does that mean then that we Earn from get forgiveness from God by extending forgiveness to others. Let me repeat that. Does that then logically mean the way I earn forgiveness from God is extending mercy horizontally to others? Absolutely, again, not. No, that's not how we do it. You do not, Scripture tells us we are not saved by forgiving others. Good night. We need forgiveness first and foremost, right? We are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone, first receiving forgiveness at the cost of the blood of the cross. So here's the point. Here's the point. Here's the point. Our willingness to extend a particular mercy of forgiveness is a reflection of whether we in reality have received God's forgiveness. 
our willingness to extend forgiveness to others is a reality check on whether or not we really have received that forgiveness. Unforgiving people, at the end of the day, are unforgiven people. Forgiving people, at the end of the day, are forgiven people. So what's the result? As you forgive people, you, you, you show proof that you really have received God's forgiveness in Christ. Not only that, not only have you received it, but based on you continuing to forgive others, he will only lavish yet more compassion in action on you. Now, is extending forgiveness always an easy thing to do? No, no, and no, right? It can be very difficult to forgive those who have sinned against you. Or perhaps even more difficult to forgive those who have sinned against somebody that you love dearly. It is decidedly not an easy thing all the time. It sure wasn't for a woman named Corey Ten Boom. Do you know her story? It's a tearjerker of a story. It's a powerful story. She was part of a Christian family who hid Jews during World War II in their apartment in Holland. They saved some 800 Jewish people from going to the gas chambers until they themselves went to the concentration camp because a Nazi sympathizer informed on them and they were all thrown into a concentration camp. Some of them lost their lives, including her dear sister Betsy that she loved so much. She had an epiphany when she was there. She said, when I was in the concentration camp, one of the most terrible things I had to go through was that they stripped us naked of all of our clothes after they segregated the women and stood them before the SS soldiers. And as they stood there, they were mocked and derided and beaten. And the first time that they had to do this, she said to her sister, Betsy, I cannot do this. I can't do this. And in that moment, she said, it was suddenly as if I could see Jesus Christ up on a cross. She remembered being told and telling others that there was a time that Jesus Christ himself was stripped of his garments and hung up on a cross. She remembered that he hung there not just generally for anybody, but specifically for her and every other sinner who would come to him. He suffered, she remembered, for my sins. And she said this. She recounts this. In my suffering, I begin to understand a fraction of the suffering of Jesus Christ. And it made me so thankful that I, through him, could bear my suffering. And then she actually breaks out in song, love so amazing, so divine, demands my life, my soul, my all. And she spent the remaining days, she lost her sister at that camp, the remaining days sharing Christ to fellow Jews, fellow fellow uh, people who were, who were in the concentration camp, and even the SS guards themselves as she had an opportunity. Amazing story. 
And because she was a faithful witness during her time in the concentration camp, churches started asking her to come and share her testimony as a Christian of sharing her faith in the concentration camp. Churches in Germany were doing that because they really need to hear about the message of forgiveness after all that that country did and went through and participated in. One day, she's at a church in Germany. It was 1947, just a few years after the concentration camp. And she gives her message of forgiveness, and she uses this very powerful illustration because she's from Holland, great great sea nearby, of when you come to Christ... God buries your sins deep in his sea, never to remember them against you no more. And so she gives that talk. And after people are, maybe they're getting ready to greet her or something, she notices a man, bald-headed man, uh, middle-aged, had a gray coat on. And as she looked at him, she was suddenly washed over by the strongest hate she could ever imagine. Because in that moment, she realized that guy was actually one of the SS guards at the camp where she and her sister were detained, where her sister lost her life. And in that moment, that gray coat became a dark Nazi uniform. She could see the SS insignia. She could see the bright sterile lights in the concrete room and the clothes pitifully piled up in the middle as the women were forced to disrobe in front of them. But now here he was, standing right in front of her, holding out his hand to greet her. And this is what he said. That was a fine message, Fraulein. How good it is to know that as you shared, all of our sins are at the bottom of the sea. Little did she know just how much her understanding of forgiveness was going to have to go to a whole new level. Because he's standing here right in front of her, SS, former SS guard, who was brutal. And as he stuck out his hand, all she could do was fumble around in her pocketbook. She couldn't stick out her hand, understandably. She she thought to herself, he he could not remember me, of course. I mean, thousands of women went through this camp called Ravensbrook. So how could he remember me? But I remember him, she says to herself. I can see him right now with his leather crop hanging from his belt, his leather whip. I was face-to-face with one of my formal brutalizers, captors, and my blood froze. He goes on. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk. Hesitantly, he said, I was a guard there. But since that time, and he stopped, looked at her, and then he continued, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things that I did there, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well. I asked the Lord that he would allow me to see one of my victims and to ask them face-to-face for forgiveness. Again, his hand went out. Fraulein, will you forgive me? And she said, I stood there. I whose sins had to be forgiven again and again and again, and I could not forgive. Betsy had died in that place. 
Could he just erase her horrible death simply for the asking? And she says she wrestled with the most difficult thing she ever had to do. But she said, I had to do it. And she quotes Matthew 6. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. She stood there before this SS man, still seeing that Nazi insignia. Corey remembered that forgiveness sometimes is an act of the will before it's an act of emotion. But sometimes you literally have to move your hand before your heart is moved. So she prayed to herself, Jesus, help me. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. So she thrust out her hand. And as she did, an incredible thing took place. She said, there was a current that started at my shoulder. It raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands, and then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother. I forgive you with all my heart. She says, for a long moment we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did in that moment. But even so, I realized it was not my love. I had tried. I did not have the power to love like that. It was the power of the Holy Spirit. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Did she ever struggle with that forgiveness encounter again? She struggled quite a bit. It wasn't one and done. And she was talking to a pastor one time. She said, sometimes, she said, two weeks after this, I was kind of mad at myself for forgiving him, but then I knew it was the right thing to do, and I'm having this wrestling match. And he said, it's kind of like ringing a church bell. When you release the rope, there's a dong, and then there's a dong, and there's a dong, and slowly it stops reverberating over time. And she said, I found that true. I just kept forgiving. That's a pretty powerful story. And so I want to close just talking about the particular strand of mercy, compassion, and action called forgiveness. Because not understanding forgiveness sabotages many believers and damns many non-believers. I want to close by talking about extending forgiveness, and then I want to talk about receiving forgiveness, okay? Forget the former prisoner and the brutal prison guard. Let me talk a moment about forgiveness and unforgiveness in the most sacred human relationship there is. The most intimate husband and wife in that sense. One of the privileges that I have is to give premarital counseling here. I, under preaching, I hold that to be the most important thing I do here. I am thrilled for every opportunity. And if you've been through my premarital counseling, you know I use some of the same lines over and over. I want them indelibly enshrined in your heart and memory. Like, delete the D word from your dictionary. I ain't talking about Detroit. Um, but one of the lines I use is, and I just used this with a couple this last week, remember the stack. 
Anybody heard me say, I think I've even shared this by way of sermon. Remember the stack. Does anybody remember that? Okay, at least two people were listening. Maybe oh, a few others. Okay, good. So what I'm trying to com- communicate there is this. As they're having a hard time forgiving their spouse, and this works in any human relationship, right? I'm just talking about premarital counseling here, though. The power to forgive others is rooted in knowing how much you've been forgiven. So I use this illustration. Imagine there was a record of all of your sins. Your sins of commission, things that you've done that you ought not to have done. Your sins of omission, things that you ought to have done but you do not. Remember, sin isn't just an outward word or action, it's also an inward heart attitude. I think for most of us, if there was a record like that, the books will be open for the unbelievers one day, that it would be a stack of books that would go up to the third heavens, like Encyclopedia Britannica style, 6.5 font, double column. And we believe in the mercy of God that when Jesus took our hit on the cross, that stack was placed on him. When he who knew no sin was made to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus paid how much? Paid it all. So when we are not remembering the stack and say somebody does a sin against us, that's in comparison, can you see this? Like that. You've been forgiven a stack that goes up 68 miles, and you can't forgive that. Now listen, I flipped that to the ground. It may be a very hurtful thing. I'm not minimizing that. And there may be many things that have to happen as a result of that, okay? So I'm not just saying, don't just sweep it under the rug at all. But I'm saying when it talks about releasing forgiveness, right? Do you remember Jesus told the parable of the unforgiving servant? Guy who was owed a big, like a $6 billion debt, tells the guy, I'm going to clap you up in prison unless you pay me every last cent. And the guy says, oh, please, please, show mercy on me. And guess what? He does. Then that guy who just had a $6 billion debt released goes to find some chump that owes him like a 20 spot. He says, you give it to me, I'm going to put you in prison. Oh, no, no, please have mercy on me. He says, nope, 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 throw you in prison. And you remember Jesus' commentary? (laughs) That man... That man did not remember the stack. And therefore, in reality, his stack was still on him. So you got to remember the stack. When you have trouble forgiving somebody, remember how much you've been forgiven. Don't just remember how much you've been forgiven, though. Remember this even more. Remember all that Jesus went through so that you could be forgiven. You remember that? That's what she did in, in in that cold, sterile room. She saw Jesus on a cross. She remembered the truth of the gospel. And that stirred her heart to persevere and to be faithful. It's part of the reason we sing about the cross every week, because we forget the cross. Oh, I know we can parrot the details of it, but we're no longer stirred to live it out, to extend forgiveness. And listen, according to Romans 5, Jesus took that stack while we were ungodly, sinners, enemy and weak. That's not how he looks at us anymore. If he did that when we were that and now we are sons and daughters and saints, how much more is he going to continue to forgive us? So remember the stack. Remember what Jesus went through. 
And then as Corey ten Boom put it, remember the power of the Holy Spirit. The same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead resides in each and every believer, in each and every son and saint and daughter, in each and every one, empowering you to do what you have no ability to do in your own capacity. And sometimes you know the power of the Holy Spirit by first saying, him saying, you need to move your hand before I move your heart. That you need to do the right thing before you get the right feeling. This is the power of God in the cross. So remember the stack. Remember what Jesus went through. Remember, you have the power of the Holy Spirit. (laughs) Extend forgiveness. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. What is the Spirit telling you right now about that? Is he connecting dots with you and people and relationships and stuff like that? Say yes. Lean into it. Now, I also got to hit this. Receiving forgiveness. Sometimes it can just be hard to think, can God really forgive me? Right? Especially for believers. Because we can say, well, I did that before I was a believer and, yeah, I was just lost. I was dead. But I did that after I became a Christian. We can struggle with that, right? But if there is one scripture, there is one scripture, and Brian read it, there is one scripture that explicitly says what God is rich in. Judgment. That's not what it says. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses and sin, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. God is rich in mercy. God is a billionaire in mercy. So there is nothing you have ever done that is stronger than the blood of Christ if you will repent of that sin and turn to Christ for salvation. He forgives Nazi SS Waffen guards and he forgives people who have been looking to outward appearance but have a heart that's far from God. He just forgives sinners. Just what he does. He is a billionaire in mercy. And if you're in Christ, I want you to get this. When it comes to how you stand before God, he does not see your sin. He actually sees his son dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to appear before the throne. It's the truth of justification. Now, again, that doesn't mean you don't need to confess sin as you sin. Some people, you know, take that and get it out of line with other scripture. H.B. Charles put it this way. There's a one-time judicial forgiveness we receive at salvation when we confess our sin to Christ and our need of his mercy and forgiveness. And at that point, we're saved. We enter a relationship. God is no longer our judge. He's now our father. Now as children of the father, we do need parental forgiveness, right? We kind of, we, we shank it. We sin. And so we confess it like a child to a parent, not so that they'll love us, but because they love us, so that we can have that intimacy and warmth restored in our relationship. He is a billionaire of mercy for those who are already in Christ. Listen to the logic of Hebrews chapter 4. Because we have a high priest, Jesus, the Son of God, who's passed into the heavens, let us come boldly to the throne of grace to obtain mercy and to find grace to help in time of need. Listen, 
you may have messed up massively like David, like Peter, like the prodigal. Your father is a billionaire of mercy if you just turn to him. You may have seriously doubted your faith, even the most essential things about the faith. John the Baptist says, tell some people to go and see if he's really the Christ. He had a crisis of faith. His faith was almost deconstructed. And yet, there was mercy for him as he turned to Christ. You may feel like the guy on the road to Jericho, beaten up by life on the side of the road. There is mercy for you. Ray Ortland said, one day we're going to stand before God and we are going to weep with relief and shock of how impoverished a view of his mercy we really had. Lamentations 3. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Surely goodness and mercy will follow us all the days of our life. Former President Obama did an interview October 30, 2019 on youth activism in which he called out cancel culture. Quote, this is what he said. This idea of purity and you're never compromised and you're always politically woke and all that stuff, you should get over that quickly. The world is messy. There are ambiguities. People who do really good stuff have flaws. I do get a sense sometimes now among certain young people, and this is accelerated by social media, there is this sense sometimes of the way of me making a change is to be as judgmental as possible about other people, and that's enough. Like if I tweet or hashtag about how you didn't do something right or how you used the wrong verb, then I can sit back and feel pretty good about myself because, man, you see how woke I was? I called you out. Those are some wise words. Sometimes the keyboard does to cowards what we used to say booze does to cowards. Some guy who was a coward would get a little liquid courage and then he wanted to fight everybody. Like, come on, dude, you, come on, we know you, right? And people get keyboard courage. So I would heartily amen these wise words of our former president, and then I would simply do this. I would add the gospel because the cross cancels out cancel culture. It sure did with God with us. It doesn't mean we overlook sins. I'm not saying that at all. It doesn't mean we don't confess our sin or address sin or not speak out against sin and all that's wrong or take action and all the rest. It doesn't mean that. God doesn't just sweep everything away, but what he did is he put it on the cross. Because he's also holy, just, and righteous. What it does mean is that we are to lead with mercy. Which is compassion in action. And Jesus did not make this optional. For he said, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. This is the word of God.